Last week, I wrote a LinkedIn post about metrics and how I dislike that phrase, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. And so I wanted to come up with counterexamples of things you have to manage, but you might not be able to measure. I wanted something that was, first of all, evidently valuable, but also either very hard to measure or all the obvious measures are clearly broken in some way. And ideally, this is something that most companies say they want, but they don't say how they're going to measure it. And what came to mind in this context was innovation. Most product companies say they want to be more innovative, but how do you measure that? Is there a measurement of innovation that is meaningful enough or aligned enough with actually being innovative that you can manage to it? And how do you track your innovativeness over time, your innovation, your ability to innovate? How do you check to see that your product organization, for example, is actually being innovative in a way where the metrics don't cause pernicious and perverse outcomes? Or if you're the CEO of a product company, do you simply have to use your human insight and acumen to assess how innovative the company is and whether it's improving in innovation over time? Or do you ask one of your VPs to do that on your behalf? Anyway, this got me thinking about innovation, and I thought, well, let's talk a little bit about innovation on the podcast. It's interesting from the metric standpoint, but it's also just an interesting topic in the world of product. You know, there's lots of ideas about innovation and what it means, totally separate from the question of how you manage it and measure it. And I wanted to review a few of those ideas and see how they fit into my framework for product management in general. And so this is basically a fun episode with some interesting ideas that you might not have thought about. So in this episode, I'm going to talk a little bit about the definitions of innovation. I'll talk about some examples of innovation and some ways to think about those that might be interesting. And I'll talk about the techniques for doing innovation. Hi, this is Nels Davis, and you're listening to episode number 96 of the Secrets of Product Management podcast. You can find the notes for this episode and links to all the resources I mentioned at secretsofpm.com slash 96. There's a ton of resources that are related to this in my previous episodes. I'll put links in the show notes. I'll put a link to the LinkedIn post that I made last week. And you can find all kinds of great product management resources on storytelling, persuasion, prioritization, working with developers, working with marketers on the podcast site and on my website, The Secret PM Handbook. So let's talk about innovation. What is it, first of all? So I found an interesting article. I'll put a link to this. But it had interviews with a bunch of people who are innovators. And it got their definitions of what innovation is. So here's a few of them. Innovation is the practical implementation of ideas that result in the introduction of new goods or services or improvement in offering goods or services. And that sort of sounds right. It turns out that there's a, an ISO standard, an International Standards Organization standard, 56,000, that defines innovation as a new or changed entity realizing or redistributing value with the additional phrase, an innovation is an idea that has been transformed into practical reality. So I think that's not too bad. An idea that's been transformed into practical reality. I think there's something missing from that, and we'll get to that. Another definition, turning an idea into a solution that adds value from a customer's perspective. And now that is good because it's talking about the customer and their perspective and the fact that really, if you're making innovations that don't add value to the for the from the customer's perspective, that might be a problem. Now, the piece I question, though, is, is it really about turning an idea into a solution or something else? Now, the next definition is 
that innovation is the application of ideas that are novel and useful. Creativity, the ability to generate novel and useful ideas, is the seed of innovation, but unless it's applied and scaled, it's still just an idea. Now, that's an important definition because it does differentiate between ideas, which are the fruit of creativity, one of the potential fruits of creativity, and ideas that are applied to create value, which is the heart of innovation in this context. Now, another definition, I define the innovation process as a great idea executed brilliantly and communicated in a way that is both intuitive and fully celebrates the magic of the initial concept. Again, about the idea. Now, I have a problem with this concept of it's about the idea because it makes it sound like what you do to innovate is you go out and think about ideas. And I I'm not sure that that actually is accurate, and I'll get to that in a little while. So another definition that I like better, an innovation is a feasible, relevant offering, such as a product, service, process, or experience with a viable business model that is perceived as new and is adopted by customers. So again, I'll put the website that I got a lot of these definitions from into the show notes, which is at secretsofpm.com slash 96. I think the key point is that an innovation addresses a specific challenge. It achieves value for both the company and the customer. It can't be just something that's good for us, typically. It can't be something that's just good for the customer. It needs to be both. But what I think you get down to, actually, as you listen to these, is it sounds a lot like product management is sort of innovation embodied. Finding a market problem we're solving that our target market has, that's the thing that's what an innovation will tend to be something that solves a problem like that, creating a differentiated solution to the problem. And now that differentiated solution may come from a new idea, a new technology, or just applying things that we already know, but to a problem that we hadn't re recognized before was important. And then, of course, there's taking the solution to market, which is a, a fundamental part of this whole innovation process, because if you don't take the thing to market, nobody knows that you did it. So those are some definitions of innovation, and I tend to think that it's very interesting how well it aligns with what we do as product managers already. Now let's look at a few examples, a few interesting examples of innovation over the years. One of these examples, I really grew out of my reading of Clayton Christensen's Innovator's Dilemma, which goes into the hard disk drive disruption it's very interesting stuff, but basically one area of a lot of innovation over the course of the computer age has been in computer storage. And the first computer storage was things like magnetic cores where you could store a very tiny bit of information in a pretty big hand-built thing made of, of wires and little magnetic donut circles and things like this. Couldn't store very much information, but it could store information. That was a major innovation really to be able to store information in ones and zeros in that way. And then of course that was followed up by things like disk drives. And disk drive innovation is an interesting topic and again it's covered in the innovator's dilemma. You know, first there were these big disks that IBM created that were the size literally of a washing machine. They stored a very tiny amount of data by today's standards, but of course it was considered very important in those early days. Then we had things like floppy disks, and there were several different sizes of floppy disks. And Winchester drives, what we now kind of think of as hard disk drives today. And I remember when I got my first, when I bought my first hard disk drive, 
It was a 20 megabyte hard disk drive. This podcast, the file for this podcast would not fit on that hard disk drive today, but I felt like I was rich at that point and it costs a lot of money. Nowadays, of course, our disk drives are six or eight orders of magnitude bigger <laughs> than that thing I bought for a few hundred dollars back in a long time ago at any rate. Um, one of the interesting transitions in the hard disk drive world was the transition from five and a quarter inch disk form factor hard disk drives to two and a half inch hard disk drives. And this is the what the transition that Clayton Christensen talks about in The Innovator's Dilemma. One very important idea that I took away from that, at any rate, is that these two and a half inch disk drives, the original ones, were relatively terrible compared to the dominant five and a quarter inch drives. They were terrible in a lot of ways. They didn't perform very well. They had a much worse mean time between failure. Lots of problems. They didn't store that much in comparison. They didn't have as high storage yield and things like that. But they did do one thing really well, which was to be smaller. <laughs> and for some applications, that was the most important thing. And so the point is that an innovation can sometimes be about a particular thing, even if everything else is worse, an innovative product can be important because it has that one particular thing, in this case, being smaller. And of course, over time, the, t the smaller disk drives eventually became very high quality as well, and they were no longer terrible, but they did start out terrible, and yet they still created a whole new market because they were smaller, and that was an important thing for a particular segment, and then later on for lots of segments. So, a useful thing to think about. I always think also, when I think about innovation, I think about mousetraps. And of course, there's that famous Emerson, Ralph Waldo Emerson quote. It's actually, he didn't really say it. He said something kind of like it, but it was not exact. He didn't exactly say, build a better mousetrap and the world will beat a path to your door. He said, actually, if a man has good corn or wood or boards or pigs to sell, or can make better chairs or knives, crucibles or church organs than anybody else, you will find a broad, hard-beaten road to his house, though it be in the woods. The point being, if you can build something better than your other folks and your competitors, then you might win in the battle for the market. It's a fairly simplistic view of the market. And because of this addition of the concept of the mousetrap, build a better mousetrap and the world will beat a path to your door, Lots of mousetraps are invented. It's actually the most common patent in the patent office is mousetraps, or one of the most common. But it does turn out that this isn't necessarily a good guide for innovation. The most commonly used design for mousetraps was designed in 1899, over 120 years ago. And there's been many mousetraps invented since then. Presumably, some of them are better in some ways, but none of them have taken over the market from that basic design that was designed in 1899. You know, the reality is the, the innovation that enabled us to not worry much about mousetraps anymore is that we build better houses now. We build houses that mice can't get into. And of course, maybe we have cats. I don't know if the cat, how much cats contribute to the reduction of the problem of mice, but one thing that certainly does is building houses better makes it much less likely for mice to get in and for there to you have to use mousetraps. So mousetraps are not that important a thing anymore. I also think of the example of removing horse manure in large cities. So 
back in the 1860s and 70s, as big cities like New York City and others grew bigger and bigger, and horse-drawn carriages and horse-drawn wagons and all these things were becoming more and more, the streets were becoming filled more and more with them, they were facing a very big issue, which was how to get rid of all the horse manure that was essentially littering the streets. They had to have a lot of people cleaning it up, and the rate at which the horse manure was being generated onto the streets was exceeding the rate at which they could remove it, and they didn't have a place to put it anyway. So that was a big problem. There was a lot of predictions about a big disaster in cities based on horse manure problem. Well, of course, the innovation of horseless carriages totally eliminated that problem in about 20 years, or maybe 40 years. I don't know the exact dates. But it's sort of interesting how sometimes these innovations are just a totally different technology that isn't even designed to solve that problem, but sometimes it does. So that's some examples of innovation. I think it's very interesting to think about how innovations work and things like that. Let's talk a little bit about how you actually do innovations, some of the techniques. So I would say that innovation is typically not a design activity. It's more of a discovery activity. And there's three main types of innovation, and all of these types are legitimate innovations. The ones we tend to think about, the innovations we tend to remember are the transforming types of innovations, like the two-and-a-half-inch disk drive, for example, which transformed some industries into existence because they could now be, you know, the devices could now be built in the right size that was necessary for the other constraints of the problem. So that was kind of a transform transformational thing. But some innovations are simply optimizing of existing systems and making them better. Then, of course, there's the enhancing types of, of innovations, which are not they don't transform somebody's experience, but they enhance it significantly. And those are those are innovations as well. So really, there's, as I say, three main types. There's optimizing, enhancing, and transforming. The transforming ones are the ones we remember. They're the ones we make the most note of. They're also the, the most risk, of course. They're also the hardest. They're the area where you can make the most, have where you can fail most easily. So those are some things to remember. And then there's really, I think there's sort of two modes of creating innovations. One mode is what I'm calling solution first. And an example of solution first is the post-it note. So the post-it note, the adhesive for the post-it note was invented 11 years before it was used in post-it notes, and it had several failures leading up to that point. Now, post-it notes, of course, came up, come out of the company 3M. 3M is currently, in its modern incarnation, built around the, this idea of create inventions like the the tacky adhesive that's used in post-it notes, and then figure out how to make them innovations, how to make a product that makes use of those. And sometimes that can happen quickly, and sometimes it takes a long time, as in the case of post-it notes. You know, you one thing to note is that 3M did not originally have this business model of creating inventions and then figuring out how to make them into innovations. They started, as their name suggests, their original name is Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing. They started as a carborundum mining company. Now, carborundum is a type of mineral that is actually used for making sandpaper. They started as a mining company, then they moved into sandpaper, and they still make a lot of sandpaper, and that's made with carborundum, of course. This company 
which was founded in the early 1900s and around 1907, which is now famous for its giant patent library and things like that, they didn't actually get their first patent until 1924. I'm not going to get into the full history, but their route to becoming the innovation company they're now well known for was not straight or smooth. And I think that's kind of interesting. So there's this idea of, as I say, of creating the solution first. And one thing we've learned about that is it can take a long time. Uh, another good example of this actually is the Sydney Opera House, a famous, beautiful building, a landmark building in the world. And it was so innovative in terms of its design that it took decades to build, or a decade longer than it was originally supposed to take, and it came in at a huge over cost overrun because the innovation was essentially not ready for market. The design innovation, they didn't really have a way to build it at the time, and they had to figure out all these different things. And, and even of the original design of the Sydney Opera House, only about a third of it was actually built. That's the one that you are familiar with today. There's supposed to be a lot more stuff at the Sydney Opera House location that wasn't built because they ran out of time and money. So some things to remember about the solution-first approach, meaning I'm going to create a solution that I'm going to go find a problem that it solves, right? And again, post-it notes are the poster child of that. Uh, these can fail. Uh, they do keep a pipeline of solutions running. So you you may always have things to pick from, but you also have to typically be a big company to be able to have this backlog of inventions that you can draw from when you need to try to find or solve a problem. If a problem does require some kind of new technology or invention to solve, it's important to have potentially a backlog of those inventions. It turns out that lots of innovations can be created without new inventions. So the other mode I talked about solution first. The other mode is problem first. And the reality is that most innovations start here. People go out and observe that there's a problem in the market somewhere. The two and a half inch disk drive people, probably some of them said, you know, if we could make these disk drives smaller, I bet we could help these people do a new kind of business, create new kinds of devices. Or they're coming to us and asking, can you make this smaller so we can create this new kind of device, right? There was some amount of problem discovery that happened. And then there was work to create a solution to that problem. So the reality is that in the disk drive situation, new technology did have to be invented to enable smaller disks. But most innovations don't actually require new technology. And just one example of that is Twitter, right? So Twitter was developed by two developers, Jack Dorsey and a contract programmer in 2006, after some conversations amongst the folks who at the time worked at a company called Odeo, which was a handful of people, six or five or six folks. And the innovation of Twitter, it took a bunch of existing technologies like SMS and things like that, kind of put a shell around those, and created something that did what one of the founders of Twitter, Ev Williams, said later at the XOXO conference in 2013, take a human desire, preferably one that had been around for a really long time, identify that desire, and use modern technology to take out steps. So what was the desire behind Twitter, as it turns out? Gossip, catching up, telling people what's going on, sharing a picture of your breakfast kind of thing. Those are things that people already did. They didn't have a good way of doing it. They didn't have a good way of broadcasting that to a, to a group. 
to a really big group to to the world, as it turns out, that we do on Twitter now. But that was what Twitter did. It wasn't there was no real new technology created to enable Twitter. Over time, of course, Twitter did invent new technology, although most of it was evolutionary, not revolutionary technology. And it was, as I say, built originally on things that already existed. I would say that visual voicemail is another example of this. Visual voicemail, highly innovative, made a big difference and was kind of a killer app on the iPhone when it first came out. But it was really an execution problem, not a technical problem. All of the components that went into visual voicemail were known, right? We had voicemail already. We had the ability to look up a person's name in a contact list based on their phone number. We had the ability to store voicemail in the cloud, right? A lot of the voicemail systems were already doing that. The big execution problem I've always assumed, and I have never seen a report about this, but I have to assume that this is the case. The big execution problem was probably getting the AT&T lawyers and the Apple lawyers to agree on how visual voicemail would work. AT&T was the original carrier for the iPhone. And so getting them to let Apple people and Apple phones reach into their network and grab the voicemail and grab the metadata about the voicemail. I suspect that was a lot of lawyer work. And not that programming visual voicemail wasn't a big deal, but I bet that was the harder problem was the lawyer part. (laughs) So those are some ideas about how to actually create innovation. So again, there's three main types. There's optimizing, which is essentially small improvements. There's enhancing, which is bigger improvements. And then transforming, things that create new business. And then there's the two modes. There's starting from a solution. The Post-it note example is that, is like that, where you have an invention and you are trying to figure out what to do with it. And then there's problem first, where you f- go out into the market and you find a problem that hasn't been solved or isn't solved well, and you create a new solution to it. And that may or may not involve new technology, but it often involves bringing different pieces of technology together that haven't been used before, or it may just take insights that no one has had before. Now, a big important part of innovation is how do you fund it? Because one of the big problems with innovation is a lot of it fails. A lot of innovation projects fail. And so ROI is really not very good for justifying innovation projects. So a lot of times, you know, if we're building a new product, we might say, well, we think that this product will, you know, we'll sell a million of it this year and we'll sell two million next year and we'll sell five million in year three. Of course, that's, those are very big, risky numbers that we're putting out there. And we're making an argument at that point that says by year three we'll be profitable, there'll be some return on investment and things like that. That doesn't actually work that well for software projects products in general, and it really doesn't work for innovations where we're trying to invent new things altogether. There really are two other methods that work better. One of them is what's called an innovation bucket, where there's just a bucket of money that's used to fund innovation projects, and you can have things like exit criteria for a project to be determined that it gets either out of that bucket and into the regular funding bucket, or that it gets canceled. So you can sort of say, well, let's think of all the most. Let's think about the most risky parts of this. We'll fund some re- investigation on the most risky parts. If we can't solve those risky parts, then we'll cancel it. If we can solve the risky parts, then we will get more innovation funding, or we'll move it into the regular pipeline. Uh, another option that's that's similar, an approach that's similar, 
but more structured is what's called innovation options. It's a way of accounting, of, of doing kind of a, a finance version of innovation of the innovation bucket, where essentially you ask the business to buy an option on a future product for a small amount, kind of like buying an option to sell a stock later. So it's a, that's where the name comes from. It's a lot like options, uh, buying options in the stock market. You buy an option to invest more later or to get a f- return later on an innovative product. And what you what happens with that initial funding, the little bit of the option that gets purchased, is that's used to reduce risk and to learn. And then at some point in the future that's agreed on by both the funder and the innovator, you revisit to see have you made progress toward having more certainty or do you have less certainty and so you cancel and just drop that option altogether or do you have more certainty and you say now you can buy an option for the next level of investment now i don't explain that super well we do i do have a podcast episode from several years ago where david bianetti who's one of the people that or david bianetti who's one of the people that came up with this concept uh, we interviewed him and got his insights. So I'll put a link to that podcast episode and to David Benetti's uh, website into the show notes if you're interested in learning more about innovation options. So those are some things about how to do innovation. And that's just sort of an overview. I, obviously, there's many books written about innovation, and I'm not covering everything. And some of what I say there is maybe not conventional wisdom. Some of it's very close to conventional wisdom at the same time. So I think one of the questions, as I said, when I started the podcast is one of the questions was, well, okay, so what are some ways we might be able to measure innovation? And this is sort of interesting. Um, One of the ways that's commonly used, and this is actually the way, one of the common metrics also not just for companies to measure innovation, but for countries to assess level of innovation is by number of patents granted or number of patents granted per capita for countries. Um, This obviously only works for big companies that actually do the type of research where they can get patents for it. So companies like 3M, which gets 3,000 patents a year, or Apple or Google, those companies all create huge numbers of patents. I work for a pretty big company. We don't do much in the way of patenting because that's not how we do things. And I think there is really a question of, does the number of patents really show how much innovation is happening? Because patents typically are not turned into products immediately. They don't go into market into the market immediately. They create this, this sort of backlog of capabilities that the company might decide to use to create something of value, or they might decide to use as a bargaining chip when trying to license somebody else's uh, in intellectual purpose or something like that. But it is one of the ways that big companies are kind of assessed in terms of their innovation. Another commonly discussed metric for innovation is revenue from newly introduced products. And newly introduced typically is a two to three year window looking back. How much of your revenue is from newly introduced products? It turns out that most, the most successful companies typically have a large part of their revenue coming in from newly introduced products. This isn't actually true of every successful company, even in the software world. Some companies make a huge amount of money from a product that was introduced 15 years ago. Now, they do continue to improve that product. So is that innovation? Interesting question. You know, 
are the new products truly innovative? Are there new products that they have, or is it the same product that has new features that get, gets released every year? The reality is you probably need some more conditions on this metric for it to make sense. And it's a very lagging indicator, obviously, because you want to look at, you know, if you, if you have a large amount of revenue from new products introduced in the last two or three years, that says you did a good job two to three to four to five years ago when you were creating those. Does it mean you're doing a good job now? Another metric, and this is related to sort of how I talk about innovation as being very much like product management, what is your rate of finding problems we're solving and validating that they're worth solving? Now, you can test for some actual innovative qualities like have this has this been done before? Is it worth solving? Is there a big market segment? What is the potential market size? Things like that. But, of course, you can have a big backlog of those problems that are worth solving that you found and validated, but you might not build any of them. So until those ideas or problems get turned into solutions and you take them to market, that doesn't necessarily mean you're being innovative. It might mean you're just doing, you're good at doing discovery. One really important thing to remember in all of these metrics is that innovation doesn't mean successful, of course. So lots of innovations fail, lots of newly introduced products, which count as innovations, nonetheless, aren't successful. And so how do you want to account for those? So these are all some things that I think about when I start thinking about the metrics. So I usually end these shows with three things you can start doing today. I only have one real comment on this for this episode, and that is that innovation is really about executing an idea which addresses a specific challenge and achieves value for both the company and the customer. I think that's actually a really good description of product management in general. And I think if you're doing product management right, and if you're organization as a whole is doing product management right, the company is innovative. And that's sort of what's happening. Because you have to be innovative to keep customers interested, to get new customers into the into your fold, to cr- open up into new segments, all of those different things. They all require innovation to continually go on. And sometimes it's just that optimizing kind or that enhancing kind, and occasionally it's a transforming kind. The other side of this is probably that if you're not failing in your innovations, if you're not putting new things into market that fail, hopefully you're putting some new things into the market that don't fail, but if you're not putting enough in that some of them fail, you're probably, or you may not be, innovating enough. So hopefully this has been some interesting ideas for you about the topic of innovation. I hope you made it this far through the website. I will put links to the sites and articles and things that I mentioned and other related resources in the show notes at secretsofpm.com slash 96. And you can drop a comment to me on the show page there, whether you think that I'm, my thinking is interesting about innovation or whether you think I missed out on a big bunch of important things. So comments or complaints all open. I'm also on Twitter and LinkedIn. I'm Nils Davis on both. Feel free to follow and or connect with me on either platform. Send me a DM if you like. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast in your player of choice if you haven't already and share the episode with your friends and or enemies depending on how you felt about it. Until next time, this is Nels Davis for The Secrets of Product Management. Bye-bye.